Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Just a warning that this episode does contain vivid descriptions of the brutality of plantation life. And we're back here at this, well, we could call it a crime scene, but it's, it's a very picturesque, beautiful location now. There are birds, it's jungle, it's lush, it's green, it's verdant, but yet we know so many horrors happened here, such a loss of hope and any kind of future. I don't know, it, for me, it, it's funny to be here with you, Laura. It really is. It's, like, it's hard to put into words, but... A sense of a sense of history really is. It's profound, isn't it? And it's shameful. I don't feel that. I, I, I. That's not. I don't. I'm not. I'm not feeling that. I understand that you might. I don't think you should. But I understand that's Thank an emotion you. that you will feel, and I, I get that. But I don't. I. I'm just finding, look at this, this ruin I in know, front of us. I know, that's what I'm looking right? at now. In front of us is this ruined outhouse. You see that the physical landscape is just scattered with these remnants of enslavement. Like, what went on in that ruined outhouse? There are definitely, it's, there are definitely ghosts from the past here, the echoes of the past. You can feel it all around. Well, you can because the plantation house is at the top of the hill, so just the physical structure of this place. So you have the enslavers, the plantation officials, looking down on the enslaved. Here, where we are, at the bottom of the hill, you see the sugarcane plantation, you feel the heat. Do you imagine what it was like to work here? And this is the thing I, I'm thinking about. Whilst you're down here, no freedoms, a brutal system, working in the heat, there could be people around you being in some horrible punishment for whatever misdemeanors they've done, and all the time, there's this gentrified, beautiful house up Above there sitting you. down, mocking you almost, isn't it? Yeah. I feel you would be... No, the structure of it is the hierarchy of it, you feel. And also... Enslavers at the top, and enslaved they, at the bottom. And you can imagine... Overseen. Over, overseen, yeah. It's, it's Wherever you are on this estate, I imagine you can probably see that. They can see you. Are you working? Yeah. Are you doing what you're meant to? We've asked our driver, Edwin, to take us to the Beausajou estate. It was one of the biggest plantations owned by my ancestors, the Reverend George Trevelyan and Harriet Trevelyan, who claimed compensation for the loss of their property at abolition. That's how the slaves were referred to. But Harriet and George never actually came to Beausajou. They never stepped foot in Grenada at all, Clive. They never faced the reality of what happened. They just took the profits. That's right. Instead, the people who were here, the enslaved, my ancestors, would never have experienced this place as beautiful. Life was terrible. 
as an enslaved person. It was about whipping. It was about violence, physical and mental violence. This is Olivetta Tele. She's the Distinguished Research Professor of the Legacies and Memory of Slavery at SOAS, that's the School of Oriental and African Studies, in London. To be an enslaved meant that if you do have a chance to have children, those children would be taken away from you. That actually led many women to kill their own children um, to prevent them from being enslaved. It was also about the prevention of family unit. Um, in, in the southern part of the U.S., they tended to try and keep families together because they realized at some point in certain places that they work better if they had all their family members together. But in the British Caribbean, it wasn't necessarily the, the case. There was this idea, and that is really crucial, this idea that uh, enslaved people were replaceable, understanding that they were expected to die and nobody blinked. They were expected to die young, and that was fine as long as they provided wealth for, for the enslaver. To be enslaved meant that you wouldn't live very long. Almost everyone in Grenada is descended from people who were enslaved. The people who were native to the island were killed and driven out. And then in 1762, it was captured by the British. And that's where my ancestors came in. And that's where the link between us begins. And now we're here in the Caribbean together, asking how this past is a bridge to the present. I'm Clive Lewis. And I'm Laura Trevelyan. And this is Heirs of Enslavement, Episode 2. So, Laura, you're normally based in New York and I'm normally based in London, but we've been spending plenty of time together recently, first in the Caribbean and now back in London, looking back on our trip before we start talking to people here. Now, it was an amazing week and I've been to Grenada before, of course, but this time it was more like going on a, an archaeological dig in some ways. I was kind of pulling at threads and beginning to uncover and dig up some of the things my dad had insinuated or said or things I picked up on. So it was a different visit in so many ways. For me, it was really incredible to be with you, to be with Nicole Philip Dow, to be with your dad. It just brought together all of the reasons that we're doing this podcast. When you stood up in Parliament back in February, when our family was in Grenada, apologising for what our ancestors had done to the people of Grenada. And there's your dad who has made it as a trade unionist in Britain, part of the Windrush generation, and he's retired back to Grenada. And Nicole's so thrilled to hear his story because she's a historian. It's like the story of you and Tony is a microcosm of the history of Britain and enslavement. And so that conversation gave us so much to think about for what we want to do with this series. 100%. I was just so surprised to realise how little people in Grenada know about their own history. And I thought that forgetting was just something that happened in the United Kingdom. I didn't think it would be in Grenada as well. Well, of course, it's no accident, is it, as Nicole was explaining to us, that there's a selective amnesia in Britain about slavery and in Grenada people haven't been told why they're there. And so I really think that in this episode, that's why we should jump into that history. 
And so one of the people that we spoke to during our time in the Caribbean was Professor Sir Hilary Beckles. He's the Vice-Chancellor of the University of the West Indies. He's the chair of the CARICOM Reparations Commission, which is the Caribbean-wide body that looks at reparatory justice. He is a prolific historian and writer. We both read his book, Britain's Black Debt, and the other one, How Britain's Underdeveloped the Caribbean, and the one on Barbados. And he's been building this case for reparations for most of his career. He's now in his late 60s. So Hillary is mainly based in Jamaica now, but he was born in Barbados. And we asked him if we could meet him there, because Barbados is a lot closer to Grenada than Jamaica is. And we started by asking him why the slave trade came to be in the first place. I think we should, we should begin with the, the economics of it. It became obvious by the middle of the 16th century that you could recruit African labor. You could transport it across an ocean uh, eight to 10 weeks on a, on a ship. You could bring it into a plantation colony. You could establish a military complex to control and suppress it. And you can get 10 years of labor out of that, out of that person, and you can make a profit. And, and that was the key, that after all of that complex transnational kind of system of insurance and shipping and recruitment and armies and all of that, not only is it profitable, but it is more profitable than any investment back home. So whatever you were doing back in England in terms of investing your capital, this option could double, triple, quadruple the return on capital. This is the ascendant capitalism where people are in search of of fortunes and and moving up the social ladder by accumulating wealth and and so on. So the, the options of wealth accumulation at the hyper level were few and far between. And therefore, this new enterprise called colonization and slavery became significant. Now, then there had to be an alignment of many other values. Uh, The first of these is, it will only be profitable if we could convert the African into a form of property and therefore not human. If you accepted that they were human, it meant that there were too many additional costs that you would have to carry. Uh, If you accepted that they were humans, uh, then you would have to look at things like family. They would have a right to live in families. They would have a right to practice their religion, whatever that religion might be. They would have a right to recreational time as, as social beings. So, all of those social considerations would carry costs, not only costs in terms of investing in their domestic well-being, but also costs in terms of giving them recreation time or non-working time. That would be calculated as a cost. But if, however, you convert them into a unit of property, you could buy it, you could sell it, you could lease it, you could use it as, as currency, as collateral, It's an asset on which you pay taxes, 
and you could treat it in the form of any other form of property, and you depreciate it with time. So the older it gets, you on the books of the accounts, you show depreciation, and you see the, the value diminishing over time. Uh, and the church came in to join with the economics to say, yes, they're not, they don't have a human soul. Yes, you can treat them as property. Yes, you can treat them as you would any other form of, of property. And we would endorse that. Hilary, you describe it so dispassionately, but what about the human cost of slavery? Well, the human, the human cost of slavery can be measured by examining the accounts of the plantations. So, you know that a third or so of the enslaved people you have bought will die within the first year or two on the plantations. You know that. That's the human cost. So you know that you're replacing 20 to 30% of your enslaved people on an annual basis. So you have to say, okay, we accept that human cost. We accept that the average estate of 300 enslaved Africans, that you're losing 40, 50 each year, and you have to replace them. So therefore, you need to know that there's a supply chain that brings them into your purview on a monthly, weekly basis. The ships arrive on a weekly basis and you, the auctions will begin. Uh, let's say in the, in the 17th century, when this is reaching its high point, you would purchase on auction a male for about 30 pounds and a female for slightly less. Those, those prices became inverted 100 years later where women were costing more than men. Now, so you make your capital purchase and you say, well, if I, get, if I get seven to 10 years labor out of this person, I would have made back the initial investment plus a profit. And therefore you make those calculations. So in so doing, I am not sure that slave owners had any concept of human cost because the, the, not even the Church of England, when it became a slave owner, could accept that African people were human. They, they struggled to do, do that. They struggled. You know, Clive, he's so dispassionate there, Sir Hilary Beckles, talking about 20 to 30% of the people that worked on a plantation every year dying. He's just talking about it in terms of, of profit and loss. And I think that's something that I really struggle with, the idea that it was all justified in terms of economics and property, but it was actually human life. And in a way, I feel like I can't even talk about it in the way that you can talk about it. And it makes me feel really awkward because for you, you're talking about enslaved Africans, your ancestors, people being shipped in, people being disposable. And for me, it's about something that benefited my ancestors and it's intergenerational wealth. Yes. I mean, I've gone through a gambit of emotions when I've listened to this and, and other descriptions of the brutality of enslavement. And I've gone from despair, sadness, horror, anger. Um, I think you go through them all. I understand in part why Sir Hilary Beckles is so dispassionate. I think if you're looking at this in detail, it's, it is a way that other academics understand. Clearly, it's cold, it's precise, but it's also, I think, a, a sense of self-protection. 
um, that you can put it in those terms. But I think when people think about enslavement, they think about, you know, there was someone walking around cracking a whip in the air and people were kind of just going, oh, better do a bit more work. And then you went to bed and you got up and then you played with your kids. And it, 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 it was, I think you have to understand the depravity of this, the, the baseness of this, to see why now the Caribbean and why this has had such a traumatic effect on people. Right. And Nicole Philip Dow touched on some of those long-lasting effects of slavery, some of the legacies when we spoke to her in the last episode. And it's a conversation that I feel I'm an onlooker, uh, like a, an embarrassed, awkward onlooker, not a participant. And yet the emotional toll of this history is something that comes up over and over again, so you can't escape it. So we're going to meet someone who can explain what trauma can do to people emotionally and physically, people alive now. We've put something aside to says, well, actually, I'm really irritated and I feel oppression. I feel a narrative that has been suppressed. That's coming up after this. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewelry. Only on BlueNile.com. Make sure your wedding ring is the one with your pick of diamond and lab-grown diamond bands, all hand-finished and graded for excellence. Or surprise her with something blue she'll love for life, like a stunning pair of sapphire earrings. Blue Nile's jewelry experts are available 24-7 to help, from fit questions to style advice. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Good morning. Fantastic. Thank you so much. We sit up here, which is where we always hang out. Fabulous. Oh my gosh. This is Varia Williams. She's a Barbadian drama and movement therapist, having recently completed her studies on the subject in London. Drama therapy is a form of psychotherapy, and we use the arts, we use drama, we use stories, we use myth. We use play and we come in in a kind of um, a metaphorical, oblique way to address unconscious levels of the psyche. We're at her house, an old plantation rectory, and she's explaining her thesis to us, which she's titled The Limbo State. And I have coined this thing called the limbo state of mind, which is to say that we are still residing in an in-between space. I'm thinking about the metaphor of limbo and this idea of being taken from Africa to the Americas, to the Caribbean, to Europe. This idea of a dispersal of people. And I was thinking about that being a state of limbo 
400 years later, if the thing is unaddressed, if there's still suppression and uh, the systemic and systematic oppressions, we continue in a state of limbo. And the word limbo comes from a Latin root limbus, which means border or edge. And then I think about the, 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 the travel in between the middle passage being a kind of liminal space, which also is a part of the root of limbo and limbus. It means um, to be in a prison or confinement. It means a contortion of the body. And in some Christian beliefs, it is that space on the edge between heaven and hell where the unbaptized youth might find themselves in limbo. And then I think about the dance form of the West Indian, the limbo dance, which we all know, and we perform it to tourists all the time. And that limbo dance, many don't know that it's supposed to have come from the enslaved Africans on the ship, on the deck, below the deck, being so confined that they were contorted in a way that showed a kind of prowess in how contorted one could be. It is said that the limbo dance Apart from it coming from roots of West African dance also was a, is a test of that confinement, of that contortion, where you pass underneath the bar, seeing how you can get your legs all splayed and your back almost touching the ground until the bar is lowered and lowered. And I see that bar as a symbol also of oppression and holding back. It's also that symbol of the, the periphery, the edge. And so I've been thinking about that, this whole metaphor of limbo and the limbo state of mind and what being kind of uh, in a space of in-betweenness, stuckness, which is, a, you know, when you're stuck, it's often psychologically, it's a kind of depression, a kind of sadness, and it causes all kinds of anxiety and trauma. But if you feel stuck, if you feel that you can't get to the next place, evolve in the way that is best for you physically and psychologically, what does that mean for the body? What does that mean for the mind? What does it mean for the soul? What does it mean for your children and the children after you if you are stuck? And this is what the limbo state of mind means to me. I, I'm really interested. History is all around us, you know. Everywhere you go, it's, there's history. That's often seen in buildings and so on, but what about people? And I'm just really interested because from my own personal perspective, the trauma of enslavement, can you see that in people today, do you think? Is that something that comes up in your therapy? I definitely see it. I mean, I, I'm just, I hope you're not distracted by the weed whacker in the background. <laughs> There's a school next to us, lots of action. Definitely, I mean, I think we don't often have space to stop and reflect on stuff that we're holding on to. And I think it's the benefit of therapy. And I had so much therapy while, doing, while undergoing my studies. And yes, I know that there were things that I, I buried deep that came out in my therapy, but also in my living in the UK, in a space that was so predominantly white, where I grew up, where is predominantly black in the Caribbean. But I actually realized you have a lot of rage barrier, a lot of anger and ire. And that's something that I recognize in myself and the people around me here at home. That's not something you'd expect. That's, that's, that goes against what people think of the Caribbean. as yeah. a very laid back, very... Yeah. So I'm really interested in... Yeah, I mean, to me, everyone in Barbados is so polite and charming and almost in like an old-fashioned way. 
<laughs> yes, and that's how we have been trained. That's how we've been told. We used to say, my grandparents used to say, poor, peaceful, and polite. How are you, Granny? I'm just here, poor, peaceful, and polite. Which is really lovely, sweet. But then you think about, what does that mean? And how is that a way to traverse the earth all day, every day, poor, peaceful, and polite, as a narrative? And it means that you're not... A, we've put something aside to says, well, actually, I'm really irritated, and I feel oppression. I feel a narrative that has been suppressed. I feel a repression of something that I believe is 400 years old. A legacy of slavery. Yeah. We live, I, I would say, we continue. We witness the aftermath of slavery all the time and we reside in it still. And this house is an example. I mean, I look around and I, you know, I talk about the energy of the space. But they are small things, microaggressions, people call them. But we kind of witness. I'm just sat here thinking about things that my dad said to me, don't eyeball me, boy. <laughs> um, and there's a kind of suddenness sometimes. And it's, my dad always told me to, to stand up and speak up for myself. And I think he did it because it went against, I think, something that many people in the Caribbean learned not to do. And so standing up for yourself, speaking up for yourself, not being uppity, those were things that were ingrained into you because it was a survival trait. Yes. And so those are now traumas that are passed out. Yeah, it's funny that you said not being uppity, which is a thing that just makes me so, it makes me itch. And I think it's one of those things, I, I would say Barbadians, we're very good at knowing our place. And I think about that idea of knowing your place and not being uppity, which is a real sense of, what does uppityness mean? It kind of means there's a place for you that you, there's, a, there's, a, there's either a seat at the table for you or not, but you better make sure that you have permission. Uh, and who has that permission? Who has that power? Invariably, it's not us. Poor, peaceful and polite. That's how Varia summed up the experience of her relatives. You found Varia's words, they really moved you, didn't they, Clive? Yes, they did. Um, uh, to tears, actually. Um, because she has a way of putting things that are flitting around in your head, things that are very deep, a very important part of you, but that you haven't put into words before and so to hear them expressed so eloquently which is what poets do which is what creatives do just yeah it was a very therapeutic cathartic is how I would describe it and obviously that's not something that just applies to me I think there are a lot of people across the Caribbean and the diaspora around the world that will be moved by her words not for the first time I felt this real sense of shame and horror that the legacies of slavery echo through the years and the days and the moments now. And the way that Varia condensed it was incredibly moving for me as well, but in a completely different way to you. She wasn't summing up my experience, but the way she summed up the experience of others just made me think how profound and shocking and shameful this history is. I would say, Laura, that it's your humanity and your empathy 
which is what allows you to feel the way you do when I hear it as the descendants of the victims and you as the descendants of the enslavers. Uh, I think it's that which is what ties us, our common humanity and the ability to empathise and to walk in other people's shoes. Well, that's generous of you, Clive, but I'll definitely take it. (laughs) (laughs) It's the only way we're going to come out of this saying, I think. It's true. And it brings us, though, doesn't it, to the really big question, Varia describing the emotional and physical legacy of slavery today. So then what do we do about it? How do we repair it? And that's the reparations debate. Next time, we'll be looking to the people who are leading the movement in the Caribbean for reparations, and we'll be asking them what they want and whether people are listening. We are heavily indebted. Um, The Caribbean is the most heavily indebted region in the world, and that is not by accident, because from the one, we've had to borrow monies to run our societies. We've never had a chance, frankly. That's next time on Heirs of Enslavement. Heirs of Enslavement is a Pasifonica production. It was presented by me, Laura Trevelyan, and Clive Lewis. Our producer is Rosie Stouffer. Our beautiful steel pan theme is by Andre Greenidge, with additional scored music from Senna Verdi. The sound design is by Aerophon. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.